Good morning. My name is Conrad Morse, and I serve on the Elder Council here at FBC. Today we'll be reading from the Scriptures in Romans, chapter 15, verses 1 to 7. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. You may be seated. We're in Romans, 4, Romans 15, 1 through 7. How Jesus welcomes us. How Jesus welcomes us. You might think of different kinds of welcomes you might receive. Like, for example, say you're traveling and uh, you go to a hotel. Maybe you booked a hotel. The kind of welcome you would anticipate you would receive sort of depend on where you're staying time you arrive. Like some hotels, if you arrive very late, you need to notify them, hey, I'm going to show up kind of late. Don't give my room away. And you, and you show up there and, and your key is taped to the, to the door, you know, let yourself in. Uh, you know, if you stay at a, a, a resort hotel, you might expect uh, a warm welcome. You book the vacation, maybe you're in some warm location and you show up, you fly in and you drive in from the airport, you would sort of expect someone to meet you at the curb to grab your luggage, maybe offer you a cold beverage. If you stay at a business resort, you might expect somebody to make sure you know, okay, here's where you can uh, use the Wi-Fi, here's where you can print out some documents. If you need a meeting, there's some rooms that you might be provided. There are lots of different kinds of greetings you might have. You might also have different kinds of welcomes depending on family you're staying with. Some family may say, yeah, you can park your uh, RV in the driveway. Uh, we might even let you use one of the external outlets, you know, and uh, other family, when you, when you show up, they may welcome you in, give you their bedroom that you can stay there. Others may say you can stay on the couch, make sure your things are picked up by seven o'clock. Depends on how your, your family, uh, how you get along with your family. I remember one time in particular when I was a young person, I think I was in high school, uh, we were part of a a youth choir at uh, well here at, at FBC and we had occasion to travel like we went to some churches to perform the program we had we had practiced and and uh, I'm not going to sing any of the numbers for you here this morning you're welcome <laughs> so what would happen is we had I can't remember the city of Roseburg or Eugene but we had to go up Saturday night do some rehearsals and you stayed with a host family and uh, then the next morning, he drove you to church, and we were doing the program for the, uh, the, the service for whatever church we were at. I can't even remember what church. That's how long ago it was. It was uh, the Church of Ephesus. That's how long ago it was. <laughs> and I remember, so we did the rehearsal, and then me and my buddy of mine, I can't remember who the guy was, uh, 
we, uh, we, we met this couple and they took us to their home. And they were our host family. They were like, this is fine. I'm an introvert, so it made me feel a little awkward. But they let us know right away something about their home. Is on Sunday mornings, for them, one of the ways they express their faith, I'm trying to be real generous here, folks. That's sort of Sabbath day for them. So we don't use electricity on, on Sunday mornings. So if you want toast, you're going to need to toast it Saturday night. I know. Can you believe? I, I was. I'm. I'm sorry. And 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 so you're a church that's associated with the church we go to because we don't do that. I, we have toast. We use all kinds of electricity Sunday morning. In fact, I use extra. So you're saving nothing. But there was all kinds. So there was cold cereal. There was there was all these rules. And here's what I was thinking as a young person. I, thought, I can't remember what grade I was at in high school. Even I was thinking this. You would be thinking this. You know what? You're you probably shouldn't volunteer to be a host family. Like, I don't have a problem. I don't have a problem with how you roll on Sunday mornings. That's your thing. But you're probably not host family material if on Sunday morning you're Sabbathing. And even as a young person, I didn't go down with the whole, it's not the Sabbath. That was yesterday. But we didn't go there because as a high school student, at least I had that much. So you never know. What kind of welcome do you get? That welcome was not great. Well, I suppose it was uh, for those who celebrate the Sabbath as they did. So the question is we have for ourselves this morning is what about Jesus? What kind of welcome did, does he give? And this is really, really important because we have to remember the book of Romans has outlined in very clear detail the kind of relationship we are engaged with with God prior to the welcome of Christ, and that is what's referred to as an adversarial relationship. We have rebelled against God, and so God is therefore, because of our rebellion, our enemy. So the relationship we have with God is adversarial in the midst of a, a, a relationship of enmity of adversary of rebellion jesus provides to us a particular kind of welcome and that's what we want to look at today and that welcome we need to understand from a couple of vantage points number one for some of us we need to have a better understanding of how jesus receives us for others of us, we need to recognize how Jesus receives us because that informs how we receive others. So let's look at verses 1 through 4, Romans 15, how Jesus welcomes us. First thing he does is he bears with us. The first thing Jesus does is he bears uh, with us. Uh, researchers of M at MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, in their business division did research on the most effective kinds of negotiations. And they outlined a number of aspects of really high-quality negotiations between parties. Let me give you what those issues are, because you're like, yeah, that's what I came here for was a TED Talk on MIT negotiation strategies. Bear with me for a minute, okay? Number one, everybody needs to state what their interests are. Everybody, if you're negotiating with somebody, everybody needs to know between one another, what are you into? What do you need to come out of this? The second thing between those parties, they got to discuss what the options are for everybody to get what they want, and then to argue over whether or not those options are legitimate or not. And that's what you do. You talk about those things. Finally, everybody at the negotiating table has to be willing to look at alternatives for how we can all get our interests. So the goal of high-quality negotiations is everybody has their interests met because everybody benefits. If you get what you want and I get what I want, we all profit. It's a negotiation that's extremely effective where everybody looks for creative ways in order to find out how we all gain. Mutually benefiting one another. Here's the thing about Jesus. 
He doesn't negotiate that way. He just simply gives us what we need, disregarding his own interests. That's what Jesus does. He just simply comes to the negotiating table and says, what do you need? And I'll give that to you and disregard my own interests. When Jesus came, it wasn't for a mutually beneficial relationship. He came to bear our sin, to carry the burden, not himself to be pleased, but rather to serve us. Because of our sin and rebellion, in order to have a relationship with God, our rebellion has to be paid for. The Bible makes it quite clear, we covered it in Romans, that Jesus provided the payment for our sin through his death on the cross. So therefore, the payment that was owed for our rebellion to God was paid for by Jesus. Then Jesus raised from the dead, and that was attested to by hundreds of witnesses. Jesus raised from the dead. So all who trust Jesus, number one, receive forgiveness. Their debt is paid for. Secondly, because Jesus is raised, we count on living forever with God in Christ in glory. So this is what Jesus comes to do. He provides what is in our interest, forgiveness and eternal life. So look at verse, uh, let me see, what verse are we going to start with? Verse 3, Christ did not, what? What does it say? Please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So Jesus, or the, the apostle here, uh, Paul, is quoting from Psalm 69, 9. Jesus' ministry was not to bring pleasure or to please himself. Instead, his ministry, as a fulfillment of Psalm 69, 9, was in order to bear on himself our reproaches. So think about it this way. Because we rebelled against God, that is Jesus, we therefore receive reproach, punishment for our sin. What is the punishment for our sin? According to Romans, separation from God forever. The wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life. So because we sinned against God, we receive reproach, death. Jesus then takes the reproach that should be on us, death, on himself. That's what it says here. His ministry was one where he receives on himself the reproach we should receive for reproaching him. We offend him, so therefore we receive punishment. So he he receives not only the initial offense, he also receives on our behalf the punishment for the offense of sinning against him. Jesus' ministry is defined as seeking our best interest at his cost. Jesus' ministry is defined as seeking our best ministry at his cost by suffering and dying on the cross, not to mention his 33 years of life living on planet Earth. Now you say, well, that's not a big deal. What's the problem with living on planet Earth? I don't know. Have you been there? We just don't know any better. If you've spent all of eternity ruling and reigning all of the known universe in all of your glory and power coming here is kind of slumming it. And so he humiliated himself, lives here essentially as a, an, a homeless person. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head, he said. 
And then he suffers and dies on the cross, knowing this. How long would it take you to pay for your sin separated from God? How long? All of eternity, according to the scripture. That's a long time. How long did it take Jesus? A few hours. So what do we know? Jesus experienced on the cross the suffering of all of eternity for all of those sinners in a few hours. And I've said this before, but let's just remind it again. Jesus' physical suffering was the least difficult part of the cross. The receiving upon himself the punishment for our sin, which takes eternity to pay in the span of a few hours, was a significant level of suffering, not to mention receiving uh, his father's wrath. So Jesus comes here and serves in our interest at his own cost. Look at verse 4 of Romans 15. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. So I'm going to read uh, 69.9 again. Uh, that's Psalm 69.9. But I'm going to read the whole thing uh, because the author of Romans only quoted the second part. This is what it says. For zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. For zeal for your house has consumed me. Now, we've heard that before regarding Jesus, haven't we? That uh, psalm is used in reference to Jesus after he goes in and uh, whoops up on some people in the temple, cleanses the temple as it's described, as he runs out the money changers and the robbers. And the Bible then says, the gospel writer then says, this is to fulfill what the Bible says about him. His zeal for his house consumed me. But not only that, it says the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. So Jesus comes with a passion for the presence of God in his holy temple, at the same time willing to take upon himself the reproach of all sinners. And look what it says in Romans 15, 4 about this Old Testament scripture. What was written in former days was written for whose instruction? When was Psalm 69 written? A while ago. I mean, it's a Psalm of David, and David was a thousand years before Jesus, give or take. So the Psalm for us is what? I don't know, what year is it? 2021? This Psalm's going on 3,000 years old. It's pretty old. It's older than almost everybody in the room. It was written for whose instruction? Our instruction. That psalm was written, according to the Bible here, was written for you and me. How does this psalm provide instruction for us? It's through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures that we might have hope. Here's how we can have encouragement and endurance from a psalm that's going on 3,000 years old. God's been up to this the whole time. From before the creation of the world, God said, I'm going to send my son to save sinners. When, when David is writing Psalm 69, he's saying, you know what, there's some people in two or 3,000 years who are going to need to know this has always been the plan. They're going to need to know that Jesus came, that's been the plan, we're right on plan, we're right on time, it's going exactly as God intended. God has always intended to save sinners by rolling out the welcome mat for our benefit. That's what, it, that he, and we know about this all the way back in Psalm 69. That Jesus is the culmination of redemptive history. Your entire Bible is all about Jesus came to save sinners. Psalm 69 is about Jesus came to save sinners. 
Genesis 3 is about Jesus came to save sinners. This is the culmination of it. Jesus is the end result of God, all of God's work to bring glory to himself. We have hope because Jesus showed up exactly when he meant to. And he did exactly what he intended to. He did all the way. He did it perfectly. And those who trust him have salvation. So the encouragement of scripture, we might have hope. How do we have hope? If God can save us through the work of Jesus, which he's been planning from eternity past, do you think he can get us from today to glory? Do you think he can get us for another 40 or 50 years? I don't know where you're at on your timeline. I'm trying to give you the benefit of the doubt here this morning. Can God get us through a couple more decades? Yeah, I think so. I think if he can manage all of human history to bring himself glory by bringing Jesus to roll out the welcome mat, then we can have hope. Jesus will save us when we trust in him. So therefore, we need to have endurance. Through endurance and encouragement, we might have hope. We need to trust God, not just for a few minutes. We need to trust God all the way to the end. Through endurance, we experience hope. Okay, verses 3 and 4, we discover the kind of welcome that Jesus has given us. Is it a good welcome? Are you okay with it? Yeah, you're marginal. Okay. It's okay. It's early. What should that do for us? Verses 1 and 2 tell us what we should do with that. If Jesus is going to welcome us in this way, what do we do with it? Here it is. The result is this. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Did Jesus please himself? No, and get off your high horse. That's what it's saying. I mean, so many words. Let each of us please his neighbor for his neighbor's good to build him up. The result is what we're to do is to act like Jesus to others. We are to act like Jesus primarily to those who are weak. How do we have hope? We endure with long suffering by the encouragement of the scripture and therefore we gain hope because of the work of Christ. Some people haven't endured as long as you have. And this has nothing to do with age. Some people have endured clinging to hope and encouraged by the welcome of Christ for a long period of time, and their faith has been built up in the encouragement of Christ through endurance. Others haven't endured that long, and they need help. They need somebody to roll out the welcome mat to help them endure that they might have hope. And who needs to do that? Those who, are, who have been enduring. Those who are strong in their faith, who have lots of hope in Jesus, need to roll out the welcome mat just like Jesus and provide hope and encouragement to those who are weak, to bear them up, to please them by sacrificing our preferences on behalf of others. Our hope in this life is not that everything should go the way we want. Our hope in this life is that glory is coming. Our hope in this life is not that things go the way we want them to. Our hope in this life is that glory is coming. The joy of being a Christian is not merely the liberty of being a Christian, meaning we don't have to earn God's favor through religious exercise. The joy of being a Christian is we have glory that we anticipate coming. Let each of us please his neighbor. Bear with one another in our weaknesses. How do you bear with people around you? That's a really good question. Anybody know any other people? They can be annoying. Nobody here. Uh, all the other people who couldn't be here this morning, which would be hunters, I guess. Is that what we're sitting on? That's terrible. It's terrible. How to bear with people. Number one, it starts with attitude. 
It starts with what's going on in our heart. Jesus did not come welcoming us with a bad attitude. He did not come begrudgingly. The Father did not have to drag Jesus out of glory, kicking and screaming. Jesus willingly, with the joy set before him, according to Hebrews, endured the cross, despising its shame. So it starts with not a coldness, not an aloofness, not a Bible tells me I have to be nice to you, but I don't want to attitude. It's a heartfelt recognition of how much mercy and grace Jesus has provided to us. And so therefore, if Jesus can be that welcoming to me, then therefore I can extend welcome to others who are different than me and express their uh, faith in Christ different than me. What it means is we can go without the freedoms that normally we would have in order to benefit others. What he's been talking about in Romans 14 is food and drink and entertainment and leisure. The way some people express their uh, uh, worship of God, but they do so by limiting themselves because of questions of conscience. So what we can do is say, you know, I can go without some of my freedoms if that means I can encourage and strengthen the walk of others. That I can seek relationship with others even if they do things different than, than me. Let each of us please his neighbor for his neighbor's good to build him up. The goal is to build up those who are around us, especially if they uh, see things uh, different than us. Maybe you've been around people who see things different than you. They uh, see the way church ought to uh, operate different than you. They uh, prefer not to do certain things. They don't listen to certain kind of music or eat certain kinds of food or drink certain kinds of drinks. And so uh, that runs you a little bit sideways. And what we will normally do is when we get to know somebody and they do things different than us, what we do is like, boy, they're a really good person. What I'm going to do is just, you know, spend a lot less time with them and hang out more with people who are sort of roll the way I roll. That way I can avoid conflict. What's really, really important is if Jesus sought to save people who were just like him, he never would have come. The idea here is intentionally, if God has worked in our life to bring about strength in our life, to intentionally engage with those who are weaker in their faith, that we may encourage and build them up, especially if that means I have to get a do away with some stuff. Especially if it means I need to uh, get rid of things that might otherwise be perfectly okay. I might recognize with a, a new believer who struggled with certain kinds of sin, we're not going to talk about what's the newest thing on the streaming service because he struggled with what he looks at. Or somebody coming out of alcoholism, I want to encourage him in his faith. I'm not going to invite him to my favorite bar. If somebody's coming out of uh, certain kinds of sins and certain kinds of struggles. I'm going to say, well, I want to encourage and build up this person. And if it means I give up something to do that, that's really Jesus-y. That, that's the kind of thing Jesus does. How do we bear with one? We have the attitude of Christ that finds the joy of personally sacrificing that others might be built up. So the purpose here of this passage is to encourage us, number one, in how much Jesus welcomes us, he bears with us, that we might move, be moved to bear with others. Now, some of you, wouldn't, you wouldn't say this out loud. Well, maybe some of you would. But what Jesus had to bear with me is a lot less than what I have to bear with that guy. Right? Have you ever thought that? Of course you have. Stop. 
course, you, everybody thinks that. Say, well, yeah, Jesus has forgiven me, yes, but this, have you seen this guy? And so all that, all that just really reveals we have no idea how much Jesus has welcomed us. This is always going to be hard to receive and accept others different than us if we think Jesus didn't have to do as much to save us as he did to save others. And what we need to do is spend some time in the Scripture realizing how much mercy we actually needed. Okay, how Jesus welcomes us. First thing, Jesus bears uh, with us. He doesn't negotiate with us that we might have a mutually beneficial agreement that he and us will have our interests met. Instead, Jesus' salvation is primarily and only for our interest, salvation, and he receives glory because of it. All right, one other thing. Uh, We're still talking about negotiation, by the way. Look at verses 5 through 7, how Jesus welcomes us. And often... A quoted proverb of negotiations, and maybe you didn't know this, and after I say this, you're going you're gonna to real, realize you've overpaid for nearly everything you've ever bought. Here's the rule. This is what I was taught. Here's the rule. The first one to talk, someone said it, right? The first one to talk loses, right? You put the offer out on the table, and then you realize, how bad does he want it? First one to talk, right? The first one to talk loses. And uh, what it reveals, who's the most desperate for this deal to get done? Yeah, the, the car dealers are laughing out there. Stop smiling, Howard. I see you. He's like, oh, yeah, it's all up in there. <laughs> yeah, well, how am I going to buy the car if I don't say anything? Give it a shot. Give it a shot. All right. Um, here's the thing. Jesus does it different. He initiates. He initiates. He shows, he shows up and says, I, I, I want to save you. Jesus talks first. Because the reality is, if Jesus doesn't seek us, he's, we're not going to see him. The welcome of Jesus is different than we would normally experience. Jesus initiates the effort to gain relational closeness with us. We don't initiate the relationship. Jesus comes to us first, and he says, I want to create relational closeness with you at my cost. How does Jesus welcome us? He initiates the harmony between us. Let's read verses 5, 6, and 7. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of of God. We've all seen these videos online, especially of military personnel coming home, and they, they drag off the plane off of some foreign deployment, and they walk uh, through the airport, and suddenly they emerge out in the great lobby of the airport, and there's 150 people there in yellow ribbons tied uh, all over the airport, and maybe some dignitaries from the city, the mayor and whatnot are there, and everybody's cheering them, and here come, uh, and we love those. We love that. It, it's a joy to see the, the joy that is on the faces of those as they come home and, and they're welcome home. We need to recognize this is the kind of welcome Jesus gives. That the host of heaven, Jesus himself, as we come home to him in faith, is sort of chanting our name. As we, we run across the finish line of faith, Jesus is there welcoming us, saying, come in. He's the one seeking to initiate that closeness with us. In a relationship with us that is primarily characterized by rebellion, Jesus takes the initiative. He takes the first step to create harmony between us and him. And he did that by paying the bill for our sin, by offering us forgiveness, and then loving us day in 
and day out. We're going to start again at the end of the passage, verse 7. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. The call here is to recognize how Christ has welcomed us through his sacrifice and love and welcome those around us in the same manner, not merely seeing Christ as our, our example, but actually primarily seeing him as the source of strength to do that. How did Jesus welcome others? He sacrificed himself for undeserving sinners like us. He gives us his free gift through suffering, and he offers us love, mercy, grace, and sacrifice day in and day out. Maybe you've put your faith in Christ. I hope you have. Have you sinned since then? Anyone? I don't know if anybody here would have. Uh, it seems like, you know, you got up early for church. You probably have not sinned since you got saved. Is that true? Isn't that weird that he would save us knowing we're just going to keep blowing it? Don't you find that strange? I mean, I, I find that strange. Here's something that's strange for me, because I got, I got saved as a relatively uh, young person. This means Jesus saved me, and my worst sins were still coming. Like, it wasn't like you hear some people's testimonies, and, and it's like clearly all of their worst stuff was behind them because they did prison time, right? It's like, that would be fantastic. All my worst sins came after conversion. Before conversion, I mean, I was like eight. I, I took a candy bar. I mean, big deal, right? I'm not going to tell you what some of my worst sins were. You're waiting for it. You're like, now this sermon's getting interesting. You're, all of a sudden, the notepads are out. Here we go. I'm not telling you what they are, but can you believe that? Jesus saves you knowing that the biggest mess up may be ahead still. Does that make any sense to you? Maybe you're more religious than me. To me, that doesn't make any sense. Like if I help somebody, I sort of want some assurance that it's going to pay off. I want some assurance. Okay, if I'm going to give you $100 to pay a phone bill or to fix your car, I'm going to anticipate that you're not going to get in this situation again. In fact, if I'm going to help somebody in that way, I may sit down with them first. Well, let's look at your budget. I'll figure out how we got in this situation. Uh, then I'll help you out. But don't come crying to me again if you, if you mess this up again. Jesus doesn't do it that way. It doesn't make any sense, does it? What's this guy like? Who would do this? This is a couple of things about Jesus we need to recognize. Number one, really wealthy. He can afford it. He can afford to provide that kind of mercy and grace on an ongoing basis. So that means he has resources of mercy and grace that are, are unending. How are you doing on the mercy and grace resource? I've got like a gallon. And I need almost all of that just to make it through the morning. So you're getting hardly anything, right? Jesus just has loads. He just never runs out. Secondly, this is what Jesus is like. Having all those resources, he is more than excited to provide them to you on an ongoing basis. This is what stuns me about me and, and you as well, is why do we think that God is in such a bad mood? Oh, we are convinced he's an ogre. I mean, just wait till something bad happens. The other day, I backed my car into another car. Okay, I'll tell you the story. <laughs> I backed my car in my driveway into the church van in my driveway. So I wrecked my car with my employer's car. And, uh, you know, I should brag a little bit. I did the whole thing without saying any swear words. That's unusual. 
Okay, just so you know, that's, that's, that was good. I was pretty excited about that. I was, I was pretty stoked. And now you're very offended that that wouldn't, that, how could that possibly happen? Get, stop it. Okay. Um, what was I saying? So I backed the car into my car. What we do oftentimes when you have, this, that's, that's pretty tame kind of bad thing to happen. What do we do? Really, God? You ever prayed that prayer? That's my favorite prayer. Really, God? We're going to do this. That prayer assumes God's a jerk. That it assumed that that's our default position. God's a meanie, and He's just out for us. And then we read this passage, and we find out. Wait a minute. I think I'm thinking wrong about God. He's providing mercy and grace new every day. So He knows how you're going to blow it tomorrow morning, and He's already squared away for it. And He's not even in a bad mood about it. This guy is really kind really loving, and he takes the initiative to create the the relationship of harmony with us. And what the desire is, the movement of the gospel is in our heart, is verse 5, that it wouldn't just merely be a theological notion. We have to understand, God did not save us because he's a good theologian. God saved us because he loves having relationship with us. Look what it's to move in our hearts, verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant that you would live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. His prayer here is, and it's virtually impossible, that's why he's praying for it, because we only pray for things we know we can't do. He is praying the gospel would so capture us with the power and the glory of Christ's love and mercy day in and day out, that it would move into the relationships of the body of Christ and we would just just love each other with such harmony. But what if he's a jerk? It doesn't matter because we've just got so much mercy and love flowing because of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what his prayer is. Not that we would merely be theologically accurate and say, well, the Bible says I have to love you. I wouldn't normally. That's, I mean, that's how we normally approach it. The goal here is to be I know we're Baptists, and some of the people in here are guys. This is hard. We're, we're supposed to be sort of moved. I know this is weird. I'm going to say, you're supposed to feel something. You're supposed to go, wait. Wait, really? It's this good? I think I might be able to be nice to this guy. If Jesus is, in fact, this kind to me, I may, in fact, have all I need to be nice to this Yahoo that's going to my church with me. May the God of endurance... An encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. This prayer is that God would give us harmony through the powerful work of Jesus changing our hearts, that we would see God the way the Bible presents him, that he would give us his own endurance and encouragement in the gospel that would fuel our humility and fuel our service and sacrifice to one another. Look at verse 6, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does God want for his church? That with one voice, we would glorify God and our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. That one voice is not everybody talking at the same time. It's a group of people whose relationships have been redefined by the gospel. What, what is this saying? When we glorify God with our voices, there, I don't know, some of you were singing today. I heard you, right? This is, now I'm going to annoy you, but that's my job. When we sing, God hears our voices, God sees our hearts, God sees our bodies, God's all in, what else does he see? How can you 
sing to me in, in relational harmony when you are thinking about that person that way? How can, how can you sing to me about love and mercy when you think about Seth? No, I'm sorry, Seth, you're just convenient. What this, what this call is, I want you to sing to me, God is saying, with one voice, meaning in harmony, all of us offering mercy and grace to one another because of God's grace and mercy to us. So worship isn't merely a bunch of people in a room singing the same words. Worship is a bunch of people in the room who on purpose have to offer mercy and grace to one another so God can be glorified in our worship. That's what it's saying here. That's one voice. John 17, a famous passage of Scripture. We call it Jesus, a high priestly prayer. It's a fantastic uh, section of Scripture, one of my favorite sections of Scripture. I'm going to read verses 20 through 26 of John 17, sort of wrap this up. Jesus says this, I do not ask for these only, referring to his disciples. This is right around the Last Supper. But Jesus says, I also uh, ask for those who will believe in me through their word. Who's he praying for there? Praying for us. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they uh, also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus says one of the primary ways the world knows that he is sent by the Father, that he is God in the flesh to save sinners, is through the unity of the body of believers, that we testify against the deity of Christ when we are not unified. You can have the right theology all day long if you hold bitterness against brothers and sisters in the Lord, you testify Jesus isn't really God. Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one, I and them and you and me, and they may become perfectly one so the world may know that you have sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus' desire is we would be one as God is one, and that his glory would be proclaimed to the world, that our oneness would proclaim the glory of Christ, our lack of oneness is in fact destructive because it communicates that Jesus isn't as loving as the Bible says he is. Our goal is to welcome one another as Jesus has welcomed us. How does Jesus welcome us? He bears with us and he initiates uh, harmony. Okay, three quick things and then we're going to uh, close with a song. These aren't even questions. These are just statements, and I'm not uh, asking you to argue with me uh, because I'm right. You will never love the church if you don't love Jesus. It's just that simple. I mean, the church is great. Fantastic people, aren't they? I mean, pretty much. I mean, most. Can we go with most? I can't tell if I'm getting broad agreement. 
great people. I know non-believing people that go to church because it's a great place to hang out. Nice people, right? If you don't uh, love the church, I read it wrong. You will never love the church if you don't love Jesus. You can't uh, fully experience the harmony and oneness that comes with the relationships in the body of Christ without experiencing the love of Christ. It is very hard to love the church if you don't love Jesus. Also, I might suggest this. It is very hard, I'm being nice here, to love Jesus if you don't love the church. Those of you who are married, how would you feel about someone you know that you work with who was constantly tearing down your spouse? I mean, you would just you'd say, listen, we can't be friends. It, the, the, one of the greatest relationships in my life, and you're constantly tearing this person down. Well, the Bible describes the church as the bride of Christ. I might suggest it is hard to love Jesus. I'll tell you how I really think. It's impossible to love Jesus if you don't love the church. It's his bride. The Bible says he paid for his bride with his blood. And, and then you're mad at the church. Listen, there's only one person who has any right to be mad at the church. It's Jesus. And he's not. All right, get off that. Moving on. To have harmony in the body, somebody has to make the move. There's somebody either in the body of Christ here locally or around the world that uh, drives you bonkers. If there is going to be harmony in the body, somebody has to make the first move like Jesus did. And many of us just say, yes, I will extend grace and kindness to that person when they, have you, have you ever said that? When they, they're never going to. Let me just tell you. They're never going to. Whatever the when they is, they're not going to. They, if they were the kind of person that did the when they thing, you wouldn't have the problem to begin with. Who is going to take the initiative to serve the other one at their own cost? And the question is, the one who, by grace through maturity, wants to be like Christ. The strong, those who have, through the course of time, endured and understood what it means to walk like Christ, should initiate harmony in the body of Christ. Well, what if they don't realize they're wrong? Well, just be jesus -y. Accept them anyway. Last thing, in weakness and frailty, some of us are still weak, constrained by restrictions and preferences that aren't uh, in the Bible. We need to recognize there is a need for us to grow strong. So if there are things in the body of Christ that bother you that aren't in your Bible, if it bothers you that some people come wearing shorts and a tank top, if it bothers you that somebody wore a hat uh, in the building, if it, if it bothers you uh, that... Uh, we use a different English translation than you prefer. If it bothers you that somebody uh, has their kids in a particular school, I'm trying to think of things that might bother you. Have I missed anything? If it bothers you that every now and then I make an NFL joke. Seahawks played Thursday, so I got nowhere to be today. I'm going to be here all day. Russell Wilson got hurt. And I said, really, Lord? Really? That's not it. See, I made an NFL joke, and some of you are bothered. You can make the NFL jokes here. If it bothers you, our goal should be, you know, I want to be stronger. So the only things that convict my heart are things the Bible actually says to be convicted about. To have and experience the liberty 
Christ offers. So those of us who in weakness are restrained in conscience by things the Bible doesn't provide, restrict, our prayer would be that we might grow stronger. How does Jesus welcome us? He bears with us. And he bears with you today. I don't know, I don't know some of you I can tell have been Christians for a long time, and you think Jesus might be given up because you blew it really bad. And maybe all you need to walk away with this morning is recognize he's still rolling out the welcome mat today. Forty years on, you still blew it that bad. He's still rolling out the welcome mat for you today. Some of us, though, have relational brokenness in our relationships in the body of Christ, and we're waiting for the other person to finally realize they're wrong. And what we discover here, according to Jesus, is in maturity, we initiate not to serve ourselves, but to serve others and seek to find that relational harmony. And when that happens, the world says, you know what, Jesus may actually be raised from the dead. If that guy can get along with that guy, Jesus must be God. God, we thank you for your grace and kindness that you've shown us in Jesus. My prayer is this morning that you might stir in our hearts. Some of us, God, have just simply become convinced over the course of our Christian life that you are a grumpy cheapskate. God, would you open up our hearts to the good news of the gospel again this morning that we would take a long, cool drink of the refreshing water of your grace and kindness again today. But God, even more than that, we are praying and hoping that you would so fill us with the encouragement and endurance that comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ that we would welcome one another the way Jesus welcomes us that we would take the initiative to reach out and pursue harmony with those around us that we're having conflict with. And that, God, we would offer grace and mercy again and again, that we would glorify you with one voice. I would pray also, God, for those who are here this morning that don't know you, that maybe this morning they've heard and understood they need the grace of Christ today. And maybe finally, it's time by the Spirit to put faith in you for forgiveness. I pray in this moment they would reach out to you in prayer and ask for your forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand up with us as we close with a song.